And so today I'm going to be talking about Romans, uh, specifically the end of Romans. And I really love it because Paul, when, I, when, when, he's, when he writes, is one of the hardest person people for me to read because he is always um, setting such a high bar. But in this one little patch at the end of Romans 7, he is uh, talking about his failure. And, you know, he just can't seem to live up to things. And that was the one thing that convinced me that maybe I'm actually still a Christian. Because uh, I know the things I think and the things I do that don't seem like a Christian should do. And so kind of what we're hoping to talk about is like the, the healthy struggle or how to struggle well uh, while we live in this world. But how I want to start is to talk about what I did, what I was doing a little over a year ago. I was in Boston for the 4th of July. Um, it was an incredible time. Hey, Ben. <laughs> and, uh, it was an incredible time. One of the best places to be over the 4th of July. We had incredible food, ate Italian food in the North End, lots of other stuff. Uh, walked the Freedom Trail, listened to the Boston Pops while watching fireworks. And uh, probably my favorite thing was we went to Fenway Park to see the Boston Red Sox play. So we were seeing one of the best, or like one of the most classic teams in baseball at, a, at this incredible park. Uh, it was Big Poppy's final season, and he was having an incredible year, and he didn't disappoint. He he went uh, he went Yahtzee over the green green monster, but uh, <laughs> surprisingly, that's not what I remember most about the night. Um, what I remember most was a text message that I got. Uh, it was uh, the director of Open Door Mission, Tommy Thompson, and he, he had sent me a text that said, uh, Jesse's funeral will be Tuesday. Help. Jesse's funeral will be Tuesday at 1 a.m. His mom was wondering if you could do the ceremony. Will you be back in time? So I, obviously I immediately left. I was in the stairway of uh, Fenway Park and I called Tommy and I said, uh, Tommy, w what happened? And uh, he said, so Jesse, Jesse was one of the guys who was living it, uh, going through Open Door Mission, who I'd become friends with, a young guy and who had recently graduated, and Tommy said, well, you know he had graduated, he moved in with his mom, uh, he was doing really well, attending school, working, and then on the anniversary of his dad's death, uh, his mom found him dead in his room after he relapsed. Jesse had always really stood out to me um, as really being special amongst the guys that I work with at o o ODM. Um, he, Jesse asked for very little, but gave much. Um, he was just very, uh, and I think the reason was he was very grateful that he had just been given a second chance. And so he didn't feel like he deserved a lot. Um, he had the humility of someone who had fallen on their face, but he had the hope of, some, of somebody who had been redeemed. 
And so he was walking on air. I mean, everything was icy on the cake for Jesse. Uh, great artist, young guy, uh, kept to himself, had a huge smile, but would uh, mess with his friends all the time. Had a really, really promising future. Um, basically, uh, what I describe to people who uh, haven't struggled with drug and alcohol addiction, and I myself haven't, but have spent a lot of time, is it's kind of like for anyone else uh, when we go on these strict diets, because we've probably all been on one or two. I've been on quite a few. And, uh, you know, we're, we're doing really well. Uh, we're going after it. And then one day we just splurge and we eat a ton. And then there's just a downward cycle and, and it's over. Or maybe we get back up, but then it's the beginning of the end. Um, the thing is, is for addicts, uh, the margin for error is just much more slim. Uh, basically, falling off once could be, you know, the streets, uh, separation from family, the hospital, or in Jesse's case, death. It doesn't seem quite fair, but it's the reason that the men I work with are some of the people I respect the most. The reality is that even if Jesse had his network around him and all was going well, he still may have slipped. And this is the case for all of us. But now I kind of want to take it just a little bit closer to home for me and take you back to uh, my glory days in the halls of Stratford High School. Um, a truly wonderful place. Several here know. Um, but... I, uh, I, ha I was raised in a great Christian home, had two amazing parents, very supportive. My dad read the scripture to us every day. Um, Jesus was my savior. I understood the gospel at a very young age. Um, but um, as time went on, when I got to high school, I found out one day that my brother um, had gotten into drinking a little bit and partying, and I thought, um, just like a lot of things, I thought, well, if he's doing it, then I should probably do it as well. I did that with uh, eating tomatoes growing up. He told me they were gross, and so I literally never tried them. And fish and a whole lot of other things that he told me. And uh, But basically, I was wondering, hey, this path that I've been on, is this just because I was told? I mean, almost every one who's raised in a Christian home goes through this questioning period. And... Uh, or... Or are those pastures over there, like that thing that my brothers discovered, is there something better over there? Um, since that day to this, I still struggle to give up, give up tobacco. Uh, there are things that I got in at that time that are still struggles of today. Um, the worst part was what happened with my relationship with my parents, and specifically my mom. Um... I, uh, my mom and I, I got into lying, sarcasm, um, you know, I knew that they, uh, covering my tracks, I knew they wouldn't approve if they knew I was skipping youth group on a Wednesday to go drink with my friends. <laughs> um, a relationship cannot thrive built on lies and with the harshness of sarcasm. I was drunk on my newly found independence and gave into. And I was unique, that I was, 
on my uh, newly found independence and gave in to my long-denied sinful nature. Christians were all the same and bland, and I was unique and original. In fact, if you told me to do something, even if I wanted to do it, I would resist. This is the very heart of man's rebellion, not just against parents, but our Heavenly Father. Curiosity causes us to leave green pastures and cool waters, rest in the protection of our shepherd, to experience what, what is on the other side of the fence. I spent some time working with sheep, um, and they are dumb, dumb creatures. Um, they'll leave the safety and abundance of green pastures just to go check out something intriguing on the other side of the fence, even if it is right next to a cliff. We don't need the shepherd, and we run to our own destruction. The good news about my story in high school is that the good shepherd left the pen and came after me. He came to save me from all the danger around me, and especially from myself. I fell down. Um, it was really, it, the, the way that it happened was with a group of people that was like this. Um, they had a, a love and a joy and a peace uh, that none of my friends had, and I didn't recognize it right away, uh, but it kind of came to me all at once later. Like, oh, we don't have that joy. That's why I like. Um, and uh, on this trip, I fell down exhausted and allowed the good shepherd to take me home, and he did. It was so good. I found rest and was reminded what cool water really tasted like. Um, I was really excited to go home with the shepherd by my side for my new life, and especially to repair things with uh, my mom and my parents. Uh, but then something crazy happened. Um, I came home a changed man, uh, but the relationship I had with my mom didn't change. Uh, we still tore each other down. Um, it really hurt me because I wanted to be a good son and treat my mom with love and respect, but it seemed that the relationship had been broken beyond repair. Or maybe even worse, I hadn't really changed and was the same rebellious son that had left the fold, and this hurt me. Later on, like the, in college, those seeds of doubts would, would grow, um, and as, as my faith, faith became less new and less vibrant, it began to feel like new doubts would come up, and it began to feel like um, all the morality I was trying to keep together was just going through the actions. Didn't feel like a lot of heart behind it. Uh, it wasn't the new exciting thing of the day that I first returned. Um, God seemed silent at that time. I never returned to the all-out rebellion, but chose rather to live in a state of compromise. As a result, I was never fully at peace, but never fully completely out of control. Since that time, I have experienced many versions of this cycle, victory and failure. It's tiring and discouraging. Uh, you know, it was, it was such, such a bummer because... You'd be doing well in life, but in the back of your head, you, you would know, well, I'll be back there eventually. You know, I've, already, I've been to this place many times before, only to go back. And then on the other side, when you're doing well, or I mean bad, you're like, well, I'm only a few steps away from doing good again. And I know I can uh, hop back on track whenever I need to. So it just leaves you in this place and uh, makes you wonder if you're really a Christian. And I had to eventually ask, and I think we all do, like, why even try? 
why even try to accomplish this thing if we know what's going to happen? Um, what about you? Have you broke out of some destructive pattern just to return? Or maybe you came back to your vice even stronger than you did before. Porn has ravaged the church. We see scandals popping up at an alarming rate. This shouldn't be, should it? Porn and scandals are easy examples to think of because they're more visible, but maybe for you it isn't a vice, but something easier to hide like envy, resentment, or pride. I mean, pride I think is okay if you're charismatic enough, you know. It's, <laughs> if you have a good personality, people want you to be prideful. <laughs> Whatever it is, you can't seem to shake it, at least not for good. And even if you do, something else pops up right in its place. If we are forgiven by grace, why even try? Romans 7, verse 18 through 24. For I know that nothing good dwells in me that is in my flesh. For I have the desire to do what is right, but not the ability to carry it out. For I do not do the good I want, but the evil I do not want is what I keep doing. Now if I do what I do not want, it is no longer I who do it, but sin that dwells within me. So I find it to be a law that when I want to do right, evil lies close at hand. For I delight in the law of God in my inner being, but I see in my members another law waging war against the law of my mind and making me captive to the law of sin that dwells in my members. Wretched man that I am, who will deliver me from this body of death? What do we do about the problem of sin after we become Christians? If we are no longer under the law, what system should we follow and how should we live? Let's bow our heads in prayer. That was the long introduction. Father, we give thanks for our many blessings. We give thanks for our time together. I ask you to wake us up this Saturday morning and speak to our hearts. Help me speak clearly and get out a message that is honoring to you. Encourage us by your word and through your spirit. Help our church to honor you with our hearts, minds, and lives. In your name, Jesus, we boldly pray. Amen. So, the bulk of my sermon outside of the introduction is going to be uh, basically explaining two, two principles that really helped me understand Romans 7 better. Um, and that's going to be pretty much the whole sermon. Uh, these aren't necessarily the two things that theologians tell you. You need to know these things. This is just what Dave Tenhave found helpful when he was understanding Romans 7. So the first of those two things is, called, uh, is wisdom theology. This is the wisdom found uh, in the section of the Bible called the wisdom literature, uh, which is what I've been studying. And what I've been studying always seems to apply to, to everything. Um, but these are books like Psalms, Proverbs, Job, Song of Psalms, Ecclesiastes. Historically, these books have served as kind of instruction manual for God's people on how to live for God in a fallen world. We learn that true wisdom can only be found in a person who fears the Lord. Fear of the Lord that separates is the thing that separates the only two paths a person can take in life. There are those who fear the Lord and those who don't. Light and darkness. Those who are uh, condemned and forgiven of God and of the world. 
there's many other of these uh, contrasting stories kind of that weave their way throughout Scripture. This term, fear of the Lord, is scary but misunderstood. Fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge, and without it, we cannot have true wisdom. It doesn't mean uh, we have to walk around on eggshells, worried that if we mess up, our angry, God, powerful Father in heaven is going to strike us down, or can I do this or not, and what will happen? We don't have to walk around timidly. Um, in, in Christ, we can approach our, father's, our Father in heaven's throne in confidence. In Christ Jesus, righteous, his righteousness is our righteousness. And the punishment for our past, present, and future sins fall upon our Savior as he hung from the cross. We are adopted as sons and daughters of God and even called co-heirs with Christ. No, fear of the Lord is not what we think, but what is it? Fear of the Lord is knowledge of God, but it's not purely an intellectual one. The fear of the Lord is expressed in a loyalty to God because of our right standing in a relationship with him. A relationship with God through Christ is the context of fear of the Lord. If we are not in a relationship with the Lord, the fear of the Lord we can expect is eternal judgment. With this idea of relationship in mind, so just a quick thing, because I was reading a little bit, don't want to just skim over that. Uh, The context of the fear of the Lord I'm talking about is that we're in a relationship, is that we're sons of God. That's what it's speaking to, like a relationship that you can't, you're adopted, you're in, uh, you, can't, you can't be out. Um, and then so uh, the only fear of the Lord that's often like we think is if we're not found in Christ, in which case we do get what, what all men deserve, and, uh, and that's judgment and punishment. But let's, I'll put together just a little human definition of fear of the Lord. Um, So fear of the Lord is a composite response of attitude and will, shaping human behavior in conformity with the commands of God. So first what we see a fear of the Lord is, is it's a response. You know, that kind of makes us think different than just intellectual anyways. It's a response. It's a composite response of the attitude and our will. Our attitude, I'm excited to go to the store with you, you know, and what, what we want to do. Uh, or, or will. Think of a true desire to please God, not just going through the actions, but actually desiring to be like God, fight for his purposes, love the things he loves, and hate the things he hates. A desire to receive his discipline and instruction. Not will, my will, God, but yours. That is my will. I mean, how amazing would it be to actually want all these things that God wants us to do? Um, So the, 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 the attitude and the will, composite response to the attitude and will, it says, well, sh- shaping human behavior. When we want something and desire something, how could it not shape our human behavior? If we want the remote, I'm going to go grab the remote. Um, our attitude will, ref- will shape our actions. Ironically, and just to add a little wrinkle, sometimes our actions affect our attitude and our will. Sometimes setting aside time to read scripture causes us to love it and crave it even more. And so, oh, never mind. 
our response uh, of the attitude of will shaping human behavior. And this is shaped in conformity with the commands of God. So the things that God has told us, um, those are what's shaping everything. God speaks to our hearts through his spirit. He whispers in our ears. He has replaced our hearts of stone with hearts of flesh to live in this new way. We, were, um, we hear him in wise counsel, signs, dreams, and miracles, but primarily we are aligning with his written word that he gave us through the Holy Scriptures. You know, we can make faith like really complicated and like act like, oh, we're seeking God in some crazy way that you can't define. But Scripture is critical. Uh, the written word is very important. It says uh, Jesus was the living embodiment of the written word. And it says that we are to be imitators of Christ. So we are to try to follow his example. When Jesus faced off with Satan in the desert, scriptures were his sword. When he was hanging on the cross and mocked by um, those around him, uh, he quoted scripture again and kind of slammed him. Like if you see the context, it's pretty awesome. Um, Jesus was a teacher of the word. He helped people to understand it. And we are told to teach good and faithful men uh, scripture. If you want to impact our world for Christ, love God with more of your heart and make sense of life's hardest trials, you simply must seek God out through the Bible. It is the greatest written masterpiece in our world and covers all that God knew we would need in this life to live for him. And that doesn't mean you have to read scripture alone. There are people who are gifted who can help you study it. And you can read it with your friends. You don't have to do one-on-one -on -one time if it's intimidating. Um, one last possi uh, possible definition for this fear of the Lord is a holistic response to the way one thinks, chooses, and acts. Is not mechanically checking the boxes, but from the heart. With the fear of the Lord in mind, and... Um, that it leads to these two paths, um, those who fear the Lord, those who don't, and on. Um, there are only two paths. Romans 7 continues in this theme. It mentions uh, this battle of we're in the flesh or we're in the spirit. Um, we're under the law or we're under Christ. Uh, but what Romans 7 also shows us is that for us, often the path is not so clear as described. It's often muddled. We've got success and we've got failure. Um, you look at the shows we love, and it's like the character you love most at the beginning is the one you hate the most at the end, and the one you hate at the beginning is the one you love the most. And it just shows we're com complex creatures. You know, with all the good comes bad. Our strengths are our weaknesses. And uh, you see this throughout uh, the Old Testament and throughout church history as well uh, from godly, godly men. There's a battle of two wills going on in each of us. Paul says that he knows and desires the good things, but chooses the bad instead. It's almost as if we are in a state of agonizing torture, where we know the ex expectation, but can't quite find the way to live up to it, at least not fully. Ignorant bliss was incredible when I was younger, when I would mess up and only later find out it was a sin. Oh, I didn't know. Uh, but as you get older, uh, it's a real bummer. Because for the most part, you know the right path, and you willingly choose the wrong. And that's like double defeating. It's a bummer when you're no longer innocent. 
Um, in the end, we all want to know, am I doing enough? Or at least I want to know, am I doing enough? Am I okay? Am I forgiven? People have tried to answer this question over and over throughout history. This was a question Martin Luther um, was trying to answer when he was a monk during the medieval ages. And um, I just want to sh show you a diagram. Hopefully you can see there's, there's a bigger one than this, that, but um, just want to explain it really quick. But the belief at that time, this is the system that they were operating under, was we are born into sin. So then there's uh, in, infant baptism. As, a, as an infant, we're, we're baptized, and this, is, this, this enters us into a state of grace. Uh, basically, an example would be like you have a coin deposited within you. Um, so like in this system, they would still say it's by faith or by grace that we've been saved because the infant, the baby, receives something that uh, he obviously didn't earn. But then from there, once we're in this state of grace, it's on us to polish that coin. And so in order to polish that coin, we go around and around this cycle. And it's actually a much more complex cycle than this. But it's, we sin, we go to a priest, we confess, um, and then uh, the priest says, gives us penance, ten Hail Marys, or whatever it may be. Um, and we do that. We, there, there's other stuff that's not in here, but uh, you basically are constantly trying to polish your coin. Uh, and at the end of your life, if, if you've done more bad than good, um, you're not going to go to heaven, but you'll go to purgatory was a place that started. Um, and this was a place you'd be purged of your excess sin. Um, so you go there for thousands of years, and it's not heaven. It's not hell, but it's not enjoyable at all. And, um, and so then after you're purged of your excess sin, you would go to heaven. So anyways, that's that. Um, so no matter how rigorously Martin Luther worked this cycle, he could not achieve righteousness through the law. He was always left founding. He was trying his hardest. He's an example of somebody who just brutally went after it. And he just always found, I have excess sin. I don't know what to do about it. I can't answer it through this system. He was told to go to Rome, and he found lots of corruption there. And then he, uh, well, not after. He was already starting to, but then he went to Romans, and he uh, looked for answers there. And he had one verse that was a real hang-up to him. And this was uh, Romans 1.17. Uh, a lot of theologians actually say that Romans 1, 16 and 17 are the, like, are the primary thesis of Paul's letter of Romans. Uh, but yeah, we have it here. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. For I'm not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. For in the righteousness of God... For in the righteousness of God is revealed from faith for faith, as is written, the righteous shall live by faith. So this passage to most of us should be life-giving, but to Luther it wasn't. For centuries the church had reinterpreted and taught that the righteousness of God was God's active personal righteousness or justice by which he punishes the unrighteous sinner. Um, 
That's kind of a lot of words, but basically, uh, instead of, whenever he saw righteousness of God, he thought it was saying um, God's judgment when, when he wasn't acting out, and, or when he wasn't acting right. So this came to support a theology of law and works. Uh, righteousness of God terrified Luther. Said it, he said, it struck my conscience like lightning. It was like a thunderbolt to my heart. Luther knew he fell short and that he could not accomplish it, this. And, and uh, in some way, the gospel, which is called the good news, became terrible news to Luther. Every time he read it, it was like a beatdown. Um, Romans 1.17 filled Luther with anger and hatred towards God. I did not love, yes, I hated the righteous God who punishes sinners. Is it not enough, Luther tells us, he murmured, that God crushes us miserable sinners with his law, that he has to threaten us with punishment through the gospel too? It's just like you can't win. One, we've got to live hard, and then we're kind of screwed anyways. And... Um, so all the gospel was to Luther was a fearful death sentence. Uh, he, he meditated on this verse day and night, and then one day he had a breakthrough where the clouds parted and light came through. These verses were not talking about the active righteousness that God demands, but the passive righteousness that he freely gives us who believe in the gospel. The sinner is justified or declared righteousness by God through faith, in the work and death of Jesus Christ, not by our work or keeping the law. We're, um, we're saved by receiving, receiving righteousness, not achieving righteousness. Uh, this were the seeds. Uh, this, is, this was Luther's conversion and the seeds that started the Protestant Reformation. When Luther realized God's righteousness was a gift in Christ, he felt he was altogether born again had eternal paradise itself through the open gates. That place in Paul was for me truly the gates to paradise. Now his conscience was at rest. Now he was certain of his salvation, where before there had been only unrest and uncertainty. Now when talking about the word righteousness of God, Luther said, I extolled sweetest word with a love as great as the hatred which I had had before. Hated the word righteousness of God. So that, what was death to him became life to him. It was incredible. It was a life change. It was a conversion. This is not to bash the medieval church because this is our history too, and that's why we are where we are today. Um, I share this to say that if we don't cling to Scripture and humbly come to God asking for understanding of the book he wrote, we will all naturally drift towards a man-made system of transactions to earn our salvation. And so we need to be humble. We do this even in our church here in different ways. I don't, can't think of an example right now, but um, the alien righteousness of Christ is what Luther called it, something that is from outside of us, and it enters our world. The alien righteousness of God through Christ by faith is not natural to us because it is not the way our world works. No, this is the gospel when God gave the law to Moses, he did so primarily to show his people their sin. This was a humbling act. He patiently gave his people time to improve, knowing that they wouldn't. 
They were not supposed to cling to the law as a means of salvation, as if they had the answer. They were supposed to realize that they didn't have the answer. Uh, God wanted to show them their need for something greater altogether. If they had been wise, they would have tried to accomplish the entirety of the law only to fall down exhausted and ask for mercy and then God's help. But they didn't. He sent them help and a Savior anyways. But they didn't rejoice. He brought life, but they decided instead to cling to death. The laws that brought them death. And we do this too. The keepers of this system, um, when Jesus came into the world, felt threatened when a new system arrived. um, Because they had this control of this power. And now something was coming that was going to make their exclusivity void. Um, Ironically, Jesus was the one who, was the only one who lived their system perfectly, but they hated him. I mean, it was a crazy thing. Um, Instead of the grand celebration they should have held for the coming of their much-needed, long-awaited Savior, they brutally crucified him. They traded the gift for a system, and so by that system, they were judged. And it's crazy. They should have been so, so exhausted, and they should have just been like, yes, relief, like finally, and instead they, they didn't get to enjoy, you know, they, they, uh, they crucified him. Any system, any human system for salvation leads to the question, have I done enough? It also leads to pride or despair based on what we have or haven't done. Grace, however, leads to humility because we are totally dependent on God for our undeserved worthiness. This is the alien, passive grace of God, which is free to all. We are left standing in awe, giving thanks with our hearts, souls, and mind to the loving God who gave us everything. So to recap, <laughs> point one. <laughs> uh, we, discuss a fe- we discuss the fear of the Lord, which is necessary for true wisdom. Fear of the Lord leads us down one of two paths. Fear of the Lord is not purely an intellectual ascent, but an all-encompassing conformity of our whole being to the commands of God. In Romans 7, we see that even though we desire to do good and know the right path, we frequently choose what is wrong. In spite of this fact and because of this fact, we are reminded that our righteousness comes by faith as a free gift. The free gift leads to humility and a dependence on God for our worthiness. This includes digging into the book which he gave us to learn about how to live for God in a fallen world. Without it, we will drift towards a human system of works for our worthiness. So the second thing, just a little bit shorter, is uh, uh, the second concept is the healthy tensions we find in Scripture. Uh, One key to interpreting the Bible well is to be able to live within the healthy tensions that Scripture itself creates. A good example that we've kind of been talking about is faith and work. Uh, We hear James say, without without works, your faith is dead. But then elsewhere we learn is by uh, faith alone that uh, through grace that you're saved. How can that be? Uh, Seems like a contradiction. Uh, This confusion alone should at least humble us enough to ask God for help. Uh, Or we can give up and we can just choose one side or the other, but um, 
that's not what he wants us to do. He wants us to ask for help and uh, try to live in the tension. So if all scripture is from God, how can we understand these contradictions? So there's just two steps that I'm giving. Uh, step one is understand the context and purpose the author was writing for. What issues was he addressing? And um, this stuff matters. Uh, it shapes our understanding for what the passage is saying. Uh, I had to think of an example right before I came out, and I couldn't think of a great one, but the first thing that I thought of was uh, it would be as if uh, Neil had been playing Pokemon Go a ton, and his wife hadn't seen him for over a week, and he hadn't showed up to work. And I called Neil or, or wrote him a letter like Paul would have done, and was like, hey, Neil, you should probably... Uh, quit playing Pokemon Go for a little bit and uh, get back to your wife, get back to your job. And so then they took my letter and they said, well, an essential part of our faith is uh, telling each other each time we see each other that we shouldn't uh, play Pokemon Go so much. And that wouldn't be, that would be a specific example for Neil. And, um, and so we need to know why he's writing uh, this was often the case with these letters like Romans. Step two is looking at how teachings from our passage mess with what the, re mesh with what the rest of Scripture is saying. Uh, you cannot take any verses in isolation. Uh, what, what is it saying with the stanza it's in or the chapter or the entire book, the entire book of Romans? Or what's it, it, Romans saying within the New Testament? We can't separate the New Testament from the Old. Because it all has one unfolding purpose, and each part of it plays a piece and a role. And so we, 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 have, to, we have to work hard to mesh these things that don't seem to make sense. Um, we know that faith alone can save us, but what is the purpose of faith? And what is it that we're being saved from? The purpose of faith is that by it, we may be freed from sin in order to live for God. We were bound by sin, and God freed us to live new lives and better lives. Um, if we reside in the same jail cells, if we live in the same jail cells we're freed from, nothing has changed. What good is our faith if it, it came and it freed us, and then we live in the jail cell? Uh, the reality is the same. A lot of times we view faith only as a retirement plan. Um, basically, the real payoff happens when we die. Um, so we may not sin here in the world as much as we could because it doesn't feel completely right, and we know that's not the Christian way to live, but um, we're really just waiting for the, the afterlife payoff. We were playing Christians while on this earth and waiting for the real payoff in the afterlife. This understanding of our salvation is missing the fullness of the grace God has given us. We have been given new life and new hearts. Jesus paid for our eternity when he died for our sins, but talks far more in Scripture about how we are to live in this world. Dying for a cause is one thing, but living for something is quite another. Living for God in a fallen world is challenging. It is not a one-time decision. It is a lifetime grind. It can be tedious, but now that we have tasted cool waters from our shepherd, nothing else will satisfy. 
This new path is, is filled with challenges, trials, suffering, um, but it's also the only place while we're in this world that we'll feel at home. We won't feel at home anywhere else. The other reality is that when we were freed from our sins, we became slaves of Christ. One of life's greatest ironies is that true freedom in this world isn't at all what we think. True freedom is found within the constraints of God. Having created us, he knows what is best for us, and we are only truly freed when we follow his commands. That's, a, that's a, one of the crazy things in life I've had to realize. Like, oh, freedom is doing what God said rather than what I said. It's not being able to do whatever you want. Um, that took me a little while. Freedom is being free from sin. Um, but we're always a slave to somebody. And Bob Dylan says it well when he says, you've got to serve somebody. Um, it's either God or the other, one or the other path. We choose to indulge in the flesh and, and sin in part because our hearts paint far too favorable a picture of it. We forget how truly devastating our lives were before God. We get tired and think that we can find some rest in the things of the world. We are sticking our hand in the fire and are so blinded by sin that we think it feels good. Or maybe we know it is not really good, but think if we just do a little, how bad will it really hurt us? The Bible continually cautions us about the danger and luring power of sin. We will always go further than we thought we would go for longer than we wanted to be there. We're kind of, it's kind of like we're playing with these little sins, and definitely speaking about myself here, uh, like it's a little kitten, you know, not realizing that the reality is, is it's a little lion cub, and one day it will turn into like a grown, powerful lion. Um, we are extremely naive about sin. For, uh, for, for a lot of us, it's, uh, it, an easy one to think of would be uh, a man's just a little bit too long gaze at a woman. You just look a little too, too long, or maybe you look a second time when you, when you should have just seen her walk by and gone about your business. Uh, that turns to lust, and then eventually lust... Uh, turns to porn, and then that porn turns to more extreme porn, and before long, maybe it's like a massage parlor, or this or that, uh, or any other crazy thing. Um, places we never think we would go, um, pastors who never thought they would be there, or maybe it's something like resentment. You could have just, you had just a little bit of resentment towards towards someone that you could have taken care of quickly, talked to them about, and moved forward. But you let, it, you let it sit, and then it grew and grew. And now that little seed of resentment becomes like a mighty oak of resentment. And removing it is much more challenging than we ever expected and much more painful. It's almost not worth trying. We also can't enjoy life with all that uh, resentment. When we drink in sin rather than the shepherd's cool waters, it dulls our senses until we are drunk. Sin turns our world upside down until we don't know which way is up and which is down. Sin warps our view and makes us believe God is oppressive and Satan is our pal. We become addicted to a feeling or a sense of relief to find less and less of those as time moves on. Eventually, we no longer want to continue in this way knowing that the promised relief isn't really relief at all. And type of relief we do find is fleeting. 
But now we cannot leave it because we are addicted to whatever it is. We are saved eternally, but now we are trapped. Satan is the great deceiver and seeks to kill, kill and destroy us. I, I truly just imagine him just smiling as Jesse took his last breath. That is what he wants for all of us, you know, and we view him as our pal. And I hate him, you know, because I, I've seen the way he lies to my friends. He whispers crazy lies in the ears, and we believe it. I hate Satan because of what I have seen him do to my friends and loved ones. I, these lies are so much more obvious when happening to someone else. When I see it happening to one of my friends, I want to shout at him. I want to tell him, hey, wake up. What are you, how could you believe that? Or I want to go rip the chains off of them. You know, I'm very bold when it comes to them. But I lack that same zeal when it comes to lies that I believe. I ask you, what, what good is our faith if it doesn't lead us out of our chains and into the pastures of the shepherd? Not in eternity, but now. There are many healthy tensions in the Bible that we must learn to live in. One more is an already not yet tension. The kingdom has come and the kingdom is coming. When Christ broke forth into our world, the kingdom was brought forth with him. But all the creation is groaning with, within as it eagerly awaits the kingdom fully come. We have faith in Christ and are united to him in his death and resurrection. We are justified and pardoned from our sin. But while on this earth, we are transforming to come more and more like him. How can this be? How can we be? We are Christ, but we are becoming like Christ. It does not make sense. Um, do not pick one side or the other to live, uh, but live in the tension. If we take only one side, which is Christ is only our plan for eternity... Uh, we will go terrible places we never thought we'd go and do terrible things. Uh, we will also miss out on the riches that can be found in suffering. Uh, our greatest opportunity to be united with our Savior is through our suffering, to suffer as he suffered. It is also the greatest opportunity for the gospel is this way that we live, this way that we uh, take, live now, um, especially amongst trial. If Christ is only, um, we, it's the, it, the, the final thing is, it's also the greatest opportunity to share the gospel. Sharing the gospel, is the most important thing isn't what we say, even though it's critical. It's, it's how we live in trial. And we cannot give up, not if we care for our brothers and sisters in chains. On the hand, other hand, if all we do is work to become more like Christ, we will be left in our chains, as our Christianity is not true Christianity, but a system. No, we are to live in the tension. We trust that God is sovereign and in control over all things in our world, but are still told that the way we live matters. We trust that God is sovereign and that we are responsible for our actions. Some say God helps those who help themselves. That isn't what we are saying. A better way is to say that we are allowed and even encouraged to strive with all of our heart, soul, and mind towards the things of God knowing that when we, will, we fall, we are still God's sons and daughters, and when we succeed, it was by God's grace. If, if God has already predestined those who will be saved before the world was even created, why even try to love our neighbors and share the gospel with them? 
God has predestined those he will save and is in control of the way events in our world will unfold. But he has given us a role in that story. We are all called into the plot, but are to depend on him. We get to play a part, whether we are supporting actor or part of the stage crew. Not only is this our calling, but what God has created us for and where we find our joy. We get to shine in our roles with the assurance that someone good and loving is overseeing the whole production. Thank God that he is sovereign over all the chaos of our world. How wonderful that our actions actually matter. We are not robots or puppets. This is hard to understand and a beautiful mystery. If God was not in control over everything, what we saw in the world, the darkness, would be pretty discouraging. But we know that uh, there is a good God over it all. We must learn to live in the healthy tension Scripture creates. Otherwise, we will drive ourselves mad, become fatalistic, or join a cult. Every cult seems to weigh one piece of Scripture above all others. Uh, basically, they struggle to mesh the two, as we all do, and they go all in on one. Uh, there are consequences to this, uh, picking one or the other. Crazy cults come to mind like snake-handling churches. But the reality is most churches have threads of Scripture favoritism coursing through their veins. Predestination becomes our gospel message. We are the frozen chosen. We become evangelistically lazy and become a country club church. You get the point. Live in the healthy tension. Uh, Romans 7 has always been my favorite passage, uh, and obviously it's because I relate to it. Uh, Paul's other writings are tough because he's crushing it. And uh, it made me feel bad about myself. <laughs> but the end of Romans 7 gives me hope. I can relate to him. Uh, know what is right, but I failed to achieve it. And Paul did too. I understand repeated failure as a Christian. I've held this one above the ones calling me to action. Um, because if Paul couldn't accomplish these things, what chance do I have to, to accomplish it? And uh, I feel like God is probably okay with Paul. So hopefully if I grasp this passage, like he's okay with me too. Um, it's not completely wrong, but this is only one chapter of Paul's letter. It serves a purpose, but only as part of a bigger message. I held this chapter above the other 15 chapters of Paul, and my life was uh, lived out accordingly. But I was never completely at a state of peace while I lived this way. Um, I was really excited about it, but still on the inside, uh, Something didn't feel quite right. God is happy to allow me to relate to Paul in his struggle with the flesh. He wants me to understand that grace comes through faith and not the law. But he also wants me to keep moving forward. He doesn't want me to be fatalistic and just to stop trying. He wants us to ask for help knowing we need him to succeed. God wants us to preserve through trial, suffering, and the cyclical nature of success and failure, knowing our efforts are not in vain. When life is out of control, do not lose hope because God is over the process. Be humble, rely and boast in God, but move forward. Hopelessness and extremism in our lives are almost always red flags 
when you feel hopeless or when you're ex- like really extreme in some point of Scripture, know that you're probably off. That should be a red flag. That should be a useful thing to cause you to turn back to Christ. Um, without God, there is no hope or meanings in our actions, even in our successes. But with God, we are never hopeless in this life or in the one to come because our shepherd is all-powerful, all-loving, and in control. Before we close, I just wanted to quickly update uh, about my mom and I. It's been a long journey. It's been filled with prayer, tears, intentional, intense conversations, uh, moving forward, moving backwards. Um, But things have changed. When I left for college, I had little hope for the repair of our relationship or the, or the day love and re- I would love and respect her in the way that I wish. I still don't. But I can say that our relationship has been made new, and we have moved forward. This is one of my greatest joys and successes in life. Fresh hope has replaced despair in our relationship, but also in all of my other trials in life. It's kind of a pattern. When you overcome one one thing, you have confidence for another. You have hope that anything is possible. Mom and I still know how to get under each other's skin, and if we are not careful and diligent, we always do. But I love my mom, and she loves me. She is such an incredible support and incredible woman. She is also one of the best volunteers for my ministry. And it's just unbelievable that today we're doing ministry together. Uh, that's a picture of us standing together before one of our Monday night dinners, and um, how can this be? I don't know, but it is. Um, Romans 7 ends, uh, we go to 24 and 25, wretched man that I am, who will deliver me from this body of death? Thanks be to God through Jesus Christ our Lord. So then I myself serve the law of God with my mind. But with the flesh, I serve the law of sin. And that's it. (laughs) That's it for today. Uh, In our hopelessness, we turn to Christ. And it doesn't answer us on how to get out. But there is hope. So uh, next, we're going to move into a time of communion. And I've hijacked this time from Kurt Kiefer. Um, But uh, this is, we we celebrate uh, the gospel message through eating bread, uh, Jesus' body and blood, um, his blood. Uh, Today we talked about the despair Christians feel while we struggle through this life and await the good things to come. Whether it is living in sin when we know the right path or any other trial in our fallen world, I invite you all to humbly come to the table to fall down exhausted and remember that your salvation has already been paid for. This is what we remember each week when we take communion. Let us never forget it. You have been bought with a price, so give thanks. Move forward and struggle well. Um, We will have people with uh, bread and a cup on the side. So take some time to pray, reflect as the band plays. And um, if if you have not put your faith in Jesus for your salvation, uh, we invite you to come and do that today. Or uh, just stay seated and just spend the time in silence.
If you need uh, to talk to someone or pray to someone, feel free to come up to me, or and I'll turn the microphone off, or uh, talk to somebody in the back of the room uh, that'll be there to pray. But um, I am going to open us up with prayer, and then the, and we'll get started. <clears throat> Lord, uh, thank you so much for these people, uh, for uh, letting them <laughs> do their best to pay attention at 10 a.m. on a Sunday. The long-winded guy, um, Lord, we we just we ask that in the morning time, right here at the end of a tiring week, you would still find a way to impact us and speak to our hearts. Lord, uh, may your Holy Spirit convict us of sin uh, and help us to move forward. We thank you for the gift that uh, Jesus has already paid for, uh, and we uh, thank you for uh, your body and blood. In Jesus' name, Amen. So oh. 